iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo, technology, what is it all about? You could sort of think of technology as like a kind of a giant speedboat, just kind of whizzing along, bouncing along through across a lake. And behind it, there were all these waves bobbing up and down and that are kind of capsizing everybody else. And some of those boats <laughs> survive, some of them right themselves, some of them drown. But right. the tech industry isn't kind of looking over its shoulder. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times, and this is our penultimate episode of 2021. So just to give you a sense of kind of how the rest of the, the year is going to shake out in terms of just episodes, we're doing this one, obviously, and then early next week, we're going to do one more before everybody kind of disappears for Christmas. So look out for that kind of Monday, Tuesday time. And then we're off. We're off for Christmas, New Year's, and we'll be back the first week of January. So really, we're just taking basically one week off. And then we'll be back at it in 2022. So that's the plan. And this week, we have a very special guest, friend of the pod, return guest, technology prognosticator and analyst extraordinaire, Benedict Evans is on the show. Longtime listeners will be familiar with Benedict. He's been on the show, uh, gosh, at least this would be his, at least his third time. He's one of the most incisive folks in the tech world. He was at Andreessen Horowitz for many years out here. Then uh, he returned to the UK these days. He's back in London and he writes an extremely popular newsletter on all things tech. I encourage you to check that out. And I wanted to bring him on because every year he does a big presentation on the kind of the big tech themes, what's happening, where things are going. And he just did that, you know, his 2021 version of that. So I want to pick his brain about all of it. You know, what industries are about to be disrupted? What in the world is Web3 anyway? Is the metaverse actually going to be a thing? What's happening in retail, etc., etc., etc. So think of this as kind of like your 2022 primer for the most important themes and stories in tech. You'll really enjoy this one. Benedict has a great way of kind of thinking about things and framing things and just a really good sense of kind of tech history and where this all sits. So I think you'll get a lot out of it. Um, so here he is, Benedict Evans on the biggest ideas and most important trends in tech. Enjoy. Just so listeners know, you do this big presentation every year that is kind of like a state of the union, if you will, of tech. And I was just going through it and it's always fascinating with tons of like interesting charts and insights and kind of framings of things. So I thought 
it would be great as we kind of round out the year to have you on just to talk about kind of the year that was and what's coming down down the pike and what are we thinking about the kind of the big over these overarching themes in big tech and what we should be interested in and thinking about but as a starting point i was just wondering if you you know when you look back at 2021 one of the things that you're like this is the year that this finally happened or this surprising thing happened well we spent a whole year talking about regulation without really doing anything <laughs> and we feels like we've been doing that for a number of years now yeah we rebranded ar and vr metaverse and yep. we rebranded crypto web3 which isn't quite right but that's that's a good way of thinking about it and we tried to work out what the world after the lockdown would look like at least within mm. technology, that was kind of part of the conversation. So remote work and, you know, acceleration of digital adoption and, you know, video conferencing and travel and yeah. you know, more e-commerce. And meanwhile, we got some sort of two and three trillion dollar companies because the markets go up and up and up driven by all sorts of factors, only one of which is the growth of the digital opportunity. Mm. Well, we were speaking as Apple now is on the cusp of becoming a $3 trillion company. Do you have a sense of how much of this kind of just this huge expansion in values and also, you know, the underlying businesses is indeed sustainable? Is this just, you know, the tech flywheel just gaining steam? Or, you know, as we talk about inflation and everybody's going to be very worried about the economy and all these other things, how much of that is baked into what we're seeing now when you look at, you know, the valuations of obviously Apple, Facebook to a lesser extent because they have their own specific problems, but, you know, Google, certainly Microsoft. I think, well, a kind of basic observation when Netscape launched the consumer internet in 1994, there was sort of 75 to 100 million PCs on us. Most of them in America, most of them in big companies. Hmm. So there's maybe 10 or 20 million consumer PCs on the planet. And today, 4.8, 4.9 billion people have got a smartphone. Right. And there's only sort of another billion people over aged over 14 on Earth. So we've gone from this stuff being very exciting and interesting, but not actually part of most people's lives, to being a central part of everybody's life. You know, when Microsoft was a big company, Bill Gates sold accounting tools to big companies. You know, it was interesting and important, but it wasn't, you know, as dominant as it is now, as a, as a sort of central part of our lives as it is now. And I think one could kind of compare this to cars. You know, cars are very exciting and interesting in 1920. 1950, no, no, everyone's got a car. Yeah. And that's a different kind of conversation. And that gets you Walmart and McDonald's and suburbs and freeways. You know, it's what happens when everyone has a car. And we're sort of at that stage today. So... That, and that has a bunch of consequences. One of them is a regulation conversation, which we can come to. One of them is that some parts of technology, particularly consumer technology, have quite strong winner-takes-all effects. So, you know, search mm. engines have a winner-takes-all effect. Some kind of, Each kind of social network, smartphone operating systems, some kinds of retail. And so if you get a winner-takes-all effect in search and the market is 5 billion people, then that gets you quite a big company. Yeah. The same thing with Apple, you know, if you have the top end of the smartphone market, well, guess what? That means you sell two or 300 million units a year at seven or $800 at a 45% margin. And that's quite a lot of money. 
Um, <laughs> and that gets you quite a big company. And now if you then think yeah. that a valuation, a stock market valuation is an opinion on what kind of cash flows that company is going to generate in the next decade or two. So it's an opinion about, you know, what is the maturing and the deployment of the Internet as even more categories shift online. It's worth remembering, after all, only, you know, in the US, maybe 20% of retail spending is now online. In the UK, it's more like 30%. But then as you spread across Europe, and there's this great stat from last year, um, 80% of British people bought online within the last three months, only 30% of Italians. Wow. So the future's here, but it's still quite unevenly distributed. And so there's an awful lot more growth just to happen from everyone doing the kind of stuff that we all agree and understand. And we all would all agree is going to happen. Never mind thinking, well, what happens when you actually remake the car industry or you could actually remake banking or remake insurance or, you know, really change how hotels would work or really change how car ownership works. And so, you know, that you can get overexcited about that stuff. I mean, if you look at Tesla's valuation, you know, Tesla's valuation is basically equivalent to the top 10 actual car companies combined. Yeah. And obviously, Tesla only makes a fraction of the number of cars. So that valuation sort of implies not only that Tesla will take the whole car industry, but also that Tesla will take the whole car industry at much higher profits than the car industry (laughs) had before Tesla turned up. Right. And that's an interesting thesis. You know, I've got absolutely no problem intellectually with the idea that Tesla could end up with a third of the car industry. I don't actually think that will happen, but, you know, that's an intellectually defensible position. Will Tesla generate more cash flow than the entire car industry? That's a different kind of question. (laughs) Well, so that's what's really one of the themes in the presentation, which I found fascinating was this, as you point out, you know, in this first kind of you know, quarter century of the internet, perhaps the two industries that got disrupted first or hit hardest, however you want to term it, were media, my business, and music. And now what is happening is the second wave or this kind of second and third and fourth wave where tech is kind of infiltrating other industries and kind of going to do the same things in terms of just completely remaking business model, what people can do, how creators, businesses, customers, everybody kind of interacts. And I'm just wondering, when you think about that shift, where are you looking into next in terms of industries or sectors where this is coming and it's coming quickly? Well, there's so many different ways to talk about this. So um, the phrase that I used is, everything that the internet did to newspapers and music is going to happen to everyone else. Yeah. So, I mean, I had this conversation explicitly with the head of a big department store chain. We are a newspaper. We are a bundle of all sorts of different kinds of retail experiences. We have a fixed cost base. We have all this infrastructure. And suddenly, and and the footfall goes down by 20%, but the cost base hasn't changed by 20%. And that's exactly what happened to newspapers. Yep. Now, Another way to look at this is that the music industry at its peak was about sort of 30, 35, so recorded music was sort of 30 to $35 billion in today's money back in 2000. And it went down by about a third or half. It went down by about a half and it's now gone up again. So it's now about two thirds of where it was at the peak. But the thing is, so today recorded music, last 2020 recorded music was about $21 billion. Apple's App Store Commission was sort of 15 or $16 billion. 
you know, Apple's accessories and services business is $100 billion. The global internet advertising business is what, $300, $400 billion? So the tech industry doesn't care about music at all. I mean, it's a feature, you know, culturally, yes, and it's a feature on the iPhone. But as a business that you would actually care about as a future of Google, like it's trivial. Yeah, it's kind of like a nice little nice to have. Yeah, exactly. The same thing, frankly, for newspapers. You know, people in tech Mm -hmm. companies think about newspapers as, you know, the fourth estate and civil society and information and blah, 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 blah. But the ad revenue that goes to Google and Facebook didn't come from newspapers. It came from completely different places. And for Apple, it's completely irrelevant anyway. And so one of the sort of the metaphors that I was thinking about as I did this presentation is that you could sort of think of technology as like a kind of a giant speedboat that's kind of whizzing along, bouncing along through across a lake. And behind it, there are all these waves bobbing up and down and that are kind of Mm -hmm. capsizing everybody else. And some of those boats (laughs) survive, some of them right themselves, some of them drown. But the tech industry isn't kind of looking over its shoulder wondering what happened to the music business. You know, they're off building Web3 and crypto and quantum computing and, you know, enterprise SaaS and machine learning. They're doing tech stuff. And that the things that the technology industry was building 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago turn out to be hugely disruptive and destabilizing to department stores or apparel retailing or the music business. But that's then a conversation for people in music or in apparel retailing or in TV. I mean, one of the things I think about looking at Netflix is, okay, Netflix clearly only exists because of computers and, and broadband and everything else. Yeah. But Netflix is a TV company. I mean, all the questions to understand Netflix, the TV questions, like how many shows, what do they pay? How yeah. good are the shows? How do they decide? What's the budget? How do they interact with Disney Plus? Like, I don't know, ask someone in LA. These are all TV questions. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that kind of dynamic that the tech industry kind of zooms along changing everything or changing all the parameters for everyone else. But then it's a retail conversation or a media conversation or an advertising conversation or a music conversation. And meanwhile, tech is off doing machine learning. So just all those kind of different sub-conversations that it yields, one of the things that you highlighted was this company, Shine, which I'm not a teenage girl, neither are you. But if... Either of us were, we probably would know this company, but a lot of people don't. I don't know if you could just give a kind of a quick, like why you chose them. Like what are they doing that is so interesting? So if you don't know what what this company is, it's basically fast fashion, only on smartphone, shipping directly from China and looking at what people browse in order to place orders even before you've ordered. Hmm. So whereas Zara or H&M would be turning the product every week, Shein actually orders new product based on what people are looking at in the app. Like real time. Yeah. Uh, in addition, of course, the, the app itself is kind of interesting because there's a lot of TikTok and Instagram to it. There's a lot, a lot of content from the customers in it. So it doesn't feel like using the Amazon app. It's a different kind of experience. It's actually an interesting shopping experience as well as thinking right. about the logistics and the business model. Why is it interesting? Well, it's past our and H&M in Google Trends. It was the top shopping app on the app stores basically everywhere on earth for nine months. There's a bunch of data actually in the Times uh, that was printed in the Times that it's overtaken Zara and H&M in fast fashion in the USA. Yeah. Um, and so it's basically blown into this market. And it's young, right? It's a- yeah. Well, a lot of these things are sort of, you know, overnight successes that take 10 years. So it's been around a while and it's tried different <laughs> things. But I mean, right, there's a bunch right, of interesting right. things going on in here because Amazon is actually the biggest apparel retailer in the USA as well. So if you yeah. want to buy socks for your kids, you'd go on Amazon. 
you, know, you wouldn't go yep. to a store anymore. But things going on here, is this a tech company or is this a retailer? Well, clearly there's a lot of tech in there, you know, and there's stuff in there that's difficult for a retailer to do. Actually, maybe more so than there is for Netflix. But fundamentally, the product is close. Mark Andreessen sees this sort of 10 years ago, software is eating the world, was that Airbnb is not a hotel company. So Airbnb doesn't sell software to hotels. Uber doesn't sell software to taxis. They change what a hotel is or they change what a taxi company is. Shein is a little bit different because Shein kind of isn't changing what a retailer is, really. It's just using software and using a new channel. And I think, you know, obviously there's a spectrum here, but I think it's, it's interesting at a much more general level to think like, just as cars enabled all sorts of new retailers, but those weren't car companies. I mean, Walmart isn't a car company. Um, it's a retailer. I mean, you could argue it's a trucking company, but, you know, it's, it's a retailer. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and in the same way, is she in its software company? Well, yes, but it's basically it's a fast fashion company. That's what it actually is. That's what the product is. And it's not changing what fast fashion is in the way that Uber changes what taxis are either. It's, you know, it's just it's selling fast fashion. And so I think this is just a sort of interesting space where you're creating new new insurance companies, new retailers, new food companies that exploit this channel. Right, right. And it does feel like there's a lot more, and I don't know if, if you're seeing this, there's a lot more time and energy going into kind of, I mean, you referred to it in the presentation around the, you know, the world of atoms, you know, things like hard tech, for lack of a better word, whether that's like, you know, lab grown meat, or frontier science that's the phrase frontier tech yeah there you go yeah so frontier tech, yeah exactly. so, the, so so the framing i used in the presentation was sort of a three-way split because obviously I, I used to be a consultant so everything has to be be three things and so <laughs> the framing basically is so what is you know an awful lot of conversation in tech now is basically stuff that will happen in 2025 or 2030 so yeah. crypto web3 ar vr metaverse it's almost like there's two conversations. Within that is, A, it's Web3 and Metaverse. And then it's yeah. all the other stuff that might happen in 2030. So low Earth orbit satellites, plant-based meat, quantum computing, frontier AI, you know, all sorts of other stuff, which is all basically kind of primary science stuff, or a lot of it's primary science stuff. And so there's all these kind of conversations in tech are all this amazing stuff is going to happen in 2025 to 2030. It's worth remembering, like, we got really excited about the mobile internet, and that didn't happen in, in 2000, and that didn't happen until 2010. So it's just stuff takes a while. Right. You did show, you showed that great chart, which is like, you know, yay, mobile internet is here. And it takes like 10 years for like the mobile data to really start just skyrocketing. Yeah. I mean, the iPhone is 2007 and the sales don't really take off until 2010. And, and the 3G auctions were in 2000. When European mobile right. operators spent 110 billion euros buying mobile internet spectrum. And like, guess what? It took a decade for anything to happen. Um, <laughs> right, right. So the point is that there's a first piece is what tech thinks about for the, is thinking about for the future. The second piece is a huge amount of the actual company creation is deploying ideas from 2010 and 2015. So enterprise SaaS cloud, machine learning, marketplaces, networks, two-sided network marketplaces, workflows. I mean, the slide that I used is one from Vodafone from, I think, last year, where they said, look, we have 2.6 million paper invoices every year. Because, you know, think about how many base stations they have and how many shops they have. What would you build with that today as opposed to what was built with it in 1998? Right. And meanwhile, if you come from tech, you think of cloud as being this old, boring subject from a decade ago. But it's only sort of 10 or 15% of enterprise IT spending. And so, you know, my favorite example company here is a company called Frame.io, which is basically a web platform to let professional video professionals collaborate on video. 
So you don't actually edit, but there's one editor and there's 15 people who need to see it and look at it and comment on it. And so instead of that being a private Vimeo and then a Google Sheet where people type in new rows and say, frame 751, time code this, there's fix this color correction in this corner of of the frame. And then there's an email thread and a Slack channel and like, no, frame.io is just a software platform where all of that, all the commenting and the versioning and the the commenting is in one screen. And that's an idea from 2002. Except yeah. that you couldn't do that then. You know, it just took time for the network and the browser and the market to catch up with that. And so an awful lot of like the really great technology companies being created in the last five years and even being created now are basically simply just deploying fairly well understood ideas and finding new markets, new segments, new ways that you could do that in new places, um, solving that problem in new places. And that's, you know, that's hundreds of billions of dollars every year of of really cool new companies getting created. And, you know, they're not crypto, they're not metaverse, but they are going out and solving some problem for consumers or solving some problem inside a business. And then the third piece, meanwhile, going back another generation is Disney Plus is, hey, maybe we should do streaming video on the internet. Like, how old is that idea? (laughs) Sheen, maybe shine maybe we should sell clothes on the internet like that's an idea from like 1995 just that it gets deployed over and over again and reaches new segments gets done in new ways becomes bigger and bigger and bigger right when you talk about the you know just that sheer size that great juxtaposition of 20 million kind of consumer pcs to 5 billion smartphones and you think of these kind of we call like you know pick and shovel type companies like Stripe, for example, which is just, as you say, it's not, it's not an earth shattering idea. Well, I mean, Stripe is kind of interesting in a different sense in that there's like a category of startup idea where it's like there's a hole in the universe that nobody saw. Hmm. And as soon as you see it and point it out, you're like, oh my God, why had nobody ever done that before? And it turns (laughs) out it's actually very, actually physically very, very hard to do. And um, Stripe is an incredibly well-run company and they've taken this opportunity and really delivered the product vastly better than other people that were trying to do it. But, you know, it's it's an idea that you could have had at any point in the last 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Up to a point, I mean, it's slightly unfair, like, you know, APIs and, you know, know, integration here, maybe you couldn't have done it in 2005, but like, it's not crypto. It's not machine learning. It's not, didn't, it doesn't come from some radical conceptual breakthrough or realization that no one, like no one in the industry had ever thought you could do credit cards online. I know. And now it's the biggest startup in America. It's, it's crazy. Um, you and I have spoken for a, a few different times on this whole, the web three thing. And the last time I wrote about it, I used that tweet that you uh, pointed me to, which is like, you know, you hearing people talk about, it might have been about crypto, but Web3, it's kind of one and the same. You know, talking to a guy who wants to, who's really interested in farming cannabis, but anytime he wants to talk to anybody, all they can talk about is how high they are. You know, it's kind of like, there's this amazing world over here. Well, so, so no, it's better than this. So the exact <laughs> comparison is, I'm a farmer. Yeah. I'm really interested in growing marijuana. How does it handle acidic soil? How does it handle frost? And um, what kind of pesticides can I use? And the answer I get is, man, haven't you ever been high? You don't get it. <laughs> and the farmer thinks, actually, exactly. no, I have been high. I do get it. That wasn't the question. <laughs> the question is, what fertilizer yeah. do I use? Not, <laughs> haven't you experienced the rapture? 
<laughs> and exactly. oh yeah this is a, you know i mean part of this is that the twitter conversation is not the only conversation there's other conversations that happen in different forms yeah. i think there's a sort of challenge you know a challenge in the discussion of crypto which is that it's actually still very early and most of it doesn't work very well and that is very like the early internet or open source or indeed many technologies. Right. And so there's a sort of a type of person that doesn't understand that technologies can get better and looks at it and says, this is dumb and stupid. It doesn't work. And that's just a pointless comment. But the problem is then the crypto person will say, yes, but the internet looked like this and the internet started working. And like, well, that's true, but there's also a whole bunch of stuff that didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also the analogy that I used particularly in the context of metaverse and and AR and VR, is there's different kinds of work, different kinds of working, because games consoles are sort of 200 million units. So they worked, Mm. but they're not a universal experience or universal market in the way that the smartphones are. And so, you know, the reason I use the analogy is uh, if you look at VR now, you used to have a demo of the Oculus Quest, or you have a demo of one of the AR prototypes, you know, the Snap one, the Magic Leap one, or if you're inside Apple, the Apple one, like you use it and you're like, oh my God, this is a future. This is amazing. Doesn't work yet, but it's amazing. If you'd seen a PlayStation 5 in 1980, you would have said, oh my God, this is amazing. This is part of the future. (laughs) And you'd be right. But it turns out that the total global market for games consoles has sort of 200 million units install base. Right. So it's about a two-thirds of the size of Snapchat. You know, 300 million people use Snapchat every day. And that's an also-ran. Yeah, yeah. So games overall is huge, but actually relative to tech, it's kind of small. And so I think it's just kind of interesting to poke away at Web3, at crypto, whatever you want to call it. There's just an enormous amount of like useless noise. There's useless noise from people saying it's a Ponzi scheme and it'll never work and it's all slow and inefficient and burns it too much power, which none of which is a useful comment. But then there's also a huge amount of noise from kind of so-called crypto maximalists who say, oh, it's going to destroy democracy and it's going to, you know, replace the global financial system and nobody will ever vote again. You'll just become a member of a DAO. And like that, in fact, is also how people talked in the early Internet. Yeah, yeah. You know, people in the early internet, you know, well, the early consumer internet. So the early 1990s, I swear to God, there were people like loud voices saying, this is going to end war, which is exactly like, (laughs) this is like people before the First World War who thought that airplanes would end war because there's no borders in the sky. But the the hilarious thing is the people who are saying that the internet's going to end war because you'll know your neighbors and we'll all understand each other. Like, A, like you poor, sweet, naive child, guess what the internet actually did? But also they were saying this during the Bosnian Civil War when people were literally killing their neighbors. Yeah. Like they were literally killing people they'd known all their lives. So it was just kind of a weird, it was a weird moment. I mean, yes, I mean, these, these kinds of radical new technologies often kind of come with crazy politics. Like maybe you have to be crazy to believe in something that radical at the beginning. And the crazy politics sort of gets left behind. What you're left when you strip away all the noise is here's this very, very interesting technology that has a very broad scope. It's not just a database. And when you say it, sorry, just so when you say the technology, you're talking about decentralized technology, blockchain, crypto, like that as the kind of the core enabling technology. Yeah, that is very interesting and important, but we don't quite know what for or how in the same way that we didn't quite know what for or how with open source, which is part of everything. And yet the iPhone isn't open source. It's full of open source. It isn't open. 
but what does it mean to say it isn't open when it has millions of apps and billions of downloads? Like it's complicated. Yeah. And so yes, decentralized will be part of everything, but where and how and in what layers? Yeah. You know, yes, I get it. Everyone will smoke pot, but how do I grow it? <laughs> <laughs> and in what yeah. form and how many people and when? Yeah. And what happens if yeah. you drive? Like there are actual like tangible questions about well, how does this yes, but how does this work? Um, which I always yeah. think are the most interesting questions. I had a slide in the presentation where I used the, the famous Voltaire quote that the Holy Roman Empire is neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, which was true. Yes. I mean, it wasn't holy. It was exactly, literally true. It was not holy nor Roman nor an empire. It was just called the Holy Roman Empire for kind of weird with historical reasons. And in the same yeah. way, that the problem here is like if you say cryptocurrency, well, it's not really cryptography. I mean, it's, it is technically, yes, but it's not in the sense that it's secret. The currency word sort of implies it's only a currency, and that's actually not the only thing that you use it for. The same with blockchain implies it's just a database and you have people calling it distributed ledger. Again, it's no, it's not just a database. And so if you look at this and think, well, it's a distributed database or it's a currency or it's cryptography, you're not really understanding what you're looking at. Yeah. And, you know, the best description, I think, is this is a sort of distributed trustless virtual machine. So a blockchain is a computer that can run code And it runs that in a trustless distributed way, which means it's running on thousands or millions of people's computers and no one can change it without consensus from everyone in the network, which means, for example, you could build Twitter on this. And then the more followers you have, the more share of the ad revenue you get. And the share of your ad revenue isn't a function of a decision taken by somebody in an office in San Francisco. Rather, it's a function of the code. And the code can only be changed by a consensus mechanism within everybody using the network. So it's a computer. And that's why people get very excited by this, because it's a sort of fundamentally different way to make applications and make internet services that has money built in for the first time instead of having it in this weird kind of extraneous ways. The problem is... When did Linus Torvalds announce Linux? 91, 92? I think Amazon switched its data centers to Linux a decade later. There you are. It takes a decade, just like smartphones. And like the Satoshi Nakamoto paper, I can't remember exactly when it was. It must be coming. 2008. Yeah, exactly. So it's now over a decade. It works up to a point, but we're trying to work out what for. I mean, the Web3, I mean, I I sort of tweeted, it sort of occurred to me, I I, I sort of a couple of slides about this in in the deck. Three definitions. One definition is that there was this famous um, essay by Tim O'Neill in, I think, 2005 called Web 2.0. What he was saying was we had the web from like 95 through the dot-com crash, and now we've got this whole wave of new and interesting ways of of doing stuff. And what that basically comes down to is YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, Yelp, that instead of companies paying or instead of you publishing stuff on your own website and companies having a website and publishing stuff, you publish on a company's website and it's then open and distributed and shared and ranked and coded and embedded. So I can make a video, I can put it on YouTube that can then be embedded on other websites. People can share it, link to it, like it, comment it. Today, we take that for granted. This was like this, but this was a sort of second wave of the internet. And so Web 3 is to say now, well, now it's the third wave of the internet, which is in Web 2, the users make stuff and the companies control it. In version 3, the users make stuff and the users control it because, as I said, yeah. like the people using the network it's have a It's built have a on vote. this distributed it's global built, computer. Yeah, and, and in which the users have votes. And yeah. therefore, you could build Twitter on this, so that would be Web 3. So that's a fairly straightforward thesis. 
second yeah. definition is this is open source 2.0 because with open source right. one in the 90s anyone suddenly anyone can write code which again was a crazy idea and an intoxicating idea and it took over the tech industry but the software although the software is open the running of it is not open because at that moment we kind of switched to running web applications and google and facebook and google and facebook run on open source but you can't see the code you can download it, but you can't see it running in the yeah. data center. You can't see yeah, the yeah. code. The, the iPhone is full of open source, but you can't see it running. And whereas with a blockchain computer, you can see it running. And it has money built in. Yeah. So that's why it's open source 2.0. Again, fairly straightforward. And the third definition is crypto version 3. Because crypto version 1 was payments and store value and digital gold. And you put your money in blockchain yeah. to keep it there. In Bitcoin to keep it there. Version two is DeFi, which is you build a lending system on this distributed computer, but you're just building an actual money. You're building a financial application. Yeah. And then version three is you don't just build a financial application, you build Twitter or you build Spotify. Right. And so this is all tremendously intoxicating and exciting and people run around getting very, very happy about this. But it's still really early and nothing works. Well, that's as you say, it's it's quite a small, and that's what's really interesting. Your term "useless noise." There's a lot of noise, but it feels like it's a lot of people. Well, there's a lot of motivated noise. Yes, there's motivated noise on from two directions. From one hand, there's a bunch of people who are making a lot of money buying and selling and trading and speculating in this stuff. Some of whom are completely sincere. Some of whom are crooks, which is always the way of the world. Totally. But most of whom are sincere, completely sincere. Um, you also have a lot of motivated reasoning from people who didn't buy crypto in 2016 and could have done and spent the last six years saying, oh, oh, it's all bollocks, it's all bollocks. No, it's definitely bollocks. Yeah. And of course, the more the price goes up, the more they have to, the louder, louder they have to say that it's all bollocks. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile, I'm sort of sitting in the middle going, yes, this is very important for not, but not for everything, which means that both sides scream at me. Oh, which is, uh, must be super fun for you. Um, but what I think the interesting like, you know, when you say Web3, people's eyes glaze over. They're like, what are you talking about? I don't really know what that is. But then you say NFTs and like, that's like the taxi cab driver might be mentioning NFTs or something to you. It's kind of jumped the shark in that way. And I think it's really interesting. And I, again, I think most of these, what are called digital art, digital fashion, whatever you want to call it, will not work out well for the buyers, especially people who are spending, you know, vast sums of money. But the core idea there of creating a kind of digital property rights and digital scarcity on this kind of distributed computer, that seems like that might have some staying power and can be used in lots of different ways that we can't imagine yeah. right now. Again, I mean, you know, so many of these things, you can believe that that's a scam, but also believe that the tech is interesting. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I have no conceptual problem at all with the idea of like a digital collectible or digital scarcity. So, you know, you know, you buy a photographic print and it's worth something because there's a signature and the signature is verified in a database in an art gallery. Yeah. You buy a limited edition sneaker or a rare piece of vinyl, you know, none of these have intrinsic value. It's just a piece of plastic. It's just a piece of nylon and, and polystyrene and you know, polyester. It's worth something because of some, cult some broader cultural context and cultural value that says an early Sex Pistols LP is amazing. And the fact that there's only this, there's a limited number of them and you've got one, that's worth something. One step, challenge one with NFTs. It, and so there's no conceptual difference between that and an NFT. 
Yeah. Or very, very little conceptual difference between that and an NFT. You know, if Jeff Koons can put a basketball in a box of mineral oil and sell that for an enormous amount of money, yes, you can certainly sell a verifiably unique image, computer image of some in some form. And yes, you can have the whole technical argument about are you really buying the image or the entry in the database. Like, shut up. That's not an interesting argument. Yeah. Um, there's no conceptual problem at all with the idea that a JPEG could be unique or could be worth something. I think two challenges to that. First is all those other examples have a kind of a broad, deep cultural base behind them, and this stuff doesn't, clearly. Secondly, um, there's an awful lot of wash trading and manipulation and double dealing and general hackery going on. And that may not even be conscious, but, you know, if you made a huge amount of money speculating Ethereum and now you swap it into a Bored Ape NFT, is that really telling me that there's a cultural basis for a Bored Ape NFT being worth $2 million? That's not actually what just happened. It's not that somebody actually took $2 million out of a cash account in a bank and used it to buy this. <laughs> or if they did, did they do that without thinking, thinking that they were going to be able to sell it for that? And yes, if you buy an Andy Warhol, you expect that you could sell it, but you don't, so you're not doing that planning to sell it. Yeah, yeah. Some people do, but that's not the basis of the market. And so how much of this is an artifact of, you know, generalized crypto market euphoria and people, you know, is it people swapping one kind of paper for another without really like having some cultural backing for the value of the art, if you would even call it art. I think the third observation is like, this is just an early application for the tech, but you could also buy domain names on this. Mm-hmm. You could buy a business with that there's all sorts of other things that you could encode as an nft indeed you could encode your twitter account as an nft yeah and you know the idea of selling high value twitter accounts or high value instagram accounts if you've got 50 million highly engaged twitter followers you know and you want to sell that account well that's a conversation you want to sell an instagram account that's a conversation you know that on a crypto network that account would be an nft in some or could be an nft and so the use for art i mean the funny thing in this is like when I look at NFTs, I have no problem with the technology. I just think the art's all terrible. Um, it's just not very interesting. The art isn't very... I don't have a problem with the idea of a JPEG being art. Yeah, yeah. I just think that all the actual JPEGs are not art. They're crap. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but equally, the art as use case isn't the most interesting thing. Uh, there is a little bit of challenge here that we're sort of moving goalposts because first of all, Bitcoin is... Crypto is supposed to be about store value and payment. And then, no, 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 it's about DeFi. And then, no, 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 it's about applications. And then, no, 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 it's about art. No, yeah, but the art isn't the thing. Yeah, yeah. So like the Karl Popper, you know, it's like the Karl Popper criticism of Marxism who said, well, you know, the revolution keeps not happening. And they always say, oh, but the historical circumstances will be right next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like predicting the second coming. Like it's always going to happen next year. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that conversation vis-a-vis, you know, what we call now big tech, it makes me think of like, uh, as you say, like the maximalists, like this is going to change everything. This is going to blow up these behemoths, you know, the six, five or six companies that control our whole experience online. If you can completely re-architect and redistribute how the value is distributed, oh my God, this is the future. And yet Microsoft is still here. Exactly. So, I mean, I mean, seeing that the, the, the sequencing of this is kind of interesting. And one of the charts in my presentation, as I was talking about kind of SaaS and enterprise, you know, what's happening in the enterprise mm. is IBM. I went and spent like a week making a chart of IBM's install base of mainframes. And technically, I could get it back to like 1965, but you can't see it on the chart. But the point is, IBM's install base of mainframes has risen in a curve ever since they started selling them back in the mid 60s. So IBM Which shipped, is wild, given. <laughs> yeah, IBM shipped all-time record mainframe compute capacity in 2020. 
So this is an arc, a technology that basically, as far as most people would be concerned, is something you vaguely heard about from the 70s before PCs. Totally. And yet it's still there. I mean, every time you use your bank and it says, sorry, we're going down for maintenance tonight, that's a mainframe. Almost literally. Right. You know, the UK VAT system runs on DEC, which is, again, a set technology from the 70s. And so in the late 70s, people used to talk about IBM and the Seven Dwarfs. So IBM dominated the tech industry so completely. It was IBM and then there were all the midgets. And then Microsoft comes along and Microsoft and Intel and PCs totally remove IBM's dominance of tech. No one's been scared of IBM yeah. since about 1985 or maybe 1980. Yeah. And yet IBM's still there. And Microsoft didn't make mainframes. And yeah. then the same thing happens with the web. The web means that Windows is now just a platform for running a web browser for, for most people. Turned out that was great for Microsoft because they sold way more PCs to run web browsers than they ever did to sell Microsoft Office. You know, that actually gave massively more people a reason to have a PC. So it massively expanded the market, which is why there's now about 1.2, 1.3 billion PCs on us because like, because of the web. And Microsoft was the only option. You know, Linux wasn't viable and, and Apple wasn't really, you know, again, wasn't a mass market product in the same way. And so Google and Facebook don't comes along. Google comes along and Google doesn't make a PC operating system. So they make Microsoft, they remove Microsoft's power. The web removes Microsoft's power over the tech industry, but not by making a PC operating system or making, competing with Microsoft Office. Um, I mean, Google Docs does not seriously compete with Microsoft Office. Then Facebook come along. And Facebook doesn't do a search engine. Yeah. And so what sort of happened over and over, now Shopify did $160 billion of GMV in the last 12 months. So people using Shopify sold $160 billion of product in the last 12 months, which is about 45% wow. of the size of Amazon Marketplace. And Shopify isn't Amazon Marketplace. Amazon doesn't work the same way. It's not a marketplace. And for those who don't know, Shopify is just this, it makes this company that makes it very, very easy for anybody to set up a shop online. Yeah, basically. So if you use any new brand that's selling online, it's probably using Shopify. But it's not a consumer facing product. It's not directly competing with Amazon. It's just competing with Amazon and, and doing it in a different way. And so, so my point is with each of these sequences, like IBM dominates tech, Microsoft dominates tech. Microsoft has not dominated tech for 20 years. It's 20 years since somebody started a company to make software for Windows. No one's scared of Microsoft anymore. Yeah. But you don't do it by doing the old thing with the new tech. What you do is you do something new with the new tech that makes the old thing matter less. And then maybe like 20 years later, your new thing has grown so much that it can go back and replace all the stuff you were doing with the old thing. So this is the point about Frame.io. Like now it took it took until 2020 to be able to do video collaboration in a web browser instead of in a native app on a PC or a Mac. So it took 25 years for the web to go back and compete with that. You know, it took until 2000 or later for PCs to be really credible alternatives to mainframes. It took 20 years. And that's what's really interesting because there's another slide that you put together that shows just the spending of Google and Microsoft together on effectively data centers on their cloud businesses. And you kind of see these numbers, I think it's $40 billion. And you're like, they're not building roads or railroads or power lines, but these are becoming kind of the industrial undergirding of the modern economy in a way, which to a degree that I think most people don't appreciate given how much of stuff runs on the cloud. Well, this is funny. I mean, you can argue this two ways. On the one hand, as I argued in the presentation, um, the shift of enterprise to the cloud has actually only just started. If you're in Silicon Valley, you'd think this is an old, boring story from 20 years ago, 10 years ago. In fact, only sort of 
10 or 15% of our enterprise IT spending is on the cloud. Like it won't all go or it will take 30 years to all go. Only sort of 20, 25% of enterprise workflows are on the cloud. So it's still only just started. On the other side, like any new company, no new company today would be get set out building their own data center. Any startup that you encounter today will be running on AWS or Azure or maybe Google Cloud, depending on what technology they're using. When they get huge, they might decide to move to their own data centers. But to begin with, everyone will start on one of those three platforms. Now, from a competition point of view, this is great because you've just reduced the barrier to launching a product by orders of magnitude. The great example here is that when Instagram was bought by Facebook, I think it had 50 million users and 13 people, 13 staff. (laughs) And the reason that that was possible is the cloud, because instead of you, they didn't have to buy tens of millions of dollars as their own servers and set them all up and build all the database software. They could just rent it. And so the cloud has had a huge effect on increasing competition and increasing startup creation. However, you can also look at it and say, look, there's these two, three, four, five, six companies where all the stuff runs. And what does that mean? How do we think about that? How does that create, you know, strategic vulnerability and, you know, market concentration? And so there's sort of questions about that. Now, it might be that American antitrust people notice this in about 2025 and say, not not actually a shot, <laughs> not terribly good at being up to speed on, on technology developments. Yeah. But... You know, there's an interesting competition and a kind of market structure question in that. For sure. Well, look, I think those are all the kind of the themes that I wanted to hit before we let you go. Is there anything else you you think is worth thinking about when we think of the kind of the grand sweep of tech at the end of 2021 heading into 2022? Well, so the thing we haven't really talked about is regulation. Mm. And I think, you know, I've spent quite a lot of time in the last two years sort of talking about this and writing about it. And obviously, a lot of this flows out of, as we've talked about in different ways, the vastly increased scale of tech and its importance in society. And that, you know, when something, you know, the, the way that one would look at this is like, Everybody is subject to general legislation. You know, if you you go into office and shoot your editor, you don't get arrested by the newspaper police under newspaper law. You know, it's just the law. Um, But everyone's subject to criminal law, accounting law, health and safety law, and so on. But there are some industries that are big and important and have very specific, highly technical issues. And so they have their own legislation. So aircraft, oil refineries, fishing, railways, finance, obviously, cars. There's all sorts of very specific rules around how you can run an oil refinery to not blow up and how you can run a hospital and how you medicine, obviously. And so you get this phrase regulated industries. Um, So you've got sort of specific laws about how you can do things. And you could argue that technology is now going to become a regulated industry for all those sorts of reasons, that it's big and important. And there's things, if things goes, go wrong, it's a problem. But it's also very technical and specific, so you have to kind of understand it. You can't just apply general legislation. Yeah. You actually have to write specific laws about content moderation. You can't just kind of rely on you know, general tort law or something to handle that. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of a reasonable thesis. I think the challenge in looking at this is that you know, if we say that we regulate cars, for example, actually we don't. That's 20 different things. So we have laws about safety and laws about emissions, which are sort of, you could argue those are sort of related. Those don't have much to do with, with how we tax exurb development or freeway building or ask whether our city taxation plan discourages high density apartment buildings 
What do we think about light rail? What do we think about building cycle lanes? What do we think about teenage boys getting drunk and driving too fast? None of everything of what I've just said has much to do with antitrust, incidentally. Yeah. I mean, if you break up General Motors, that's not a path to putting seatbelts in the cars. That's not the right tool for that problem. And the challenge, of course, there is, you know, we had sort of 75 years to work out cars. You know, it did take like 75 years before we said that you have to have a seatbelt. Totally. Well, on that, in that example, getting seatbelts in cars was a huge thing. It was. And then you had to make people wear them. And that was another 25 years. Exactly. And car companies were like, no, we don't want to do that because people think our cars aren't safe. And then people were like, well, I don't want to wear that. That's infringing my freedom. And then like, well, if you don't wear it, it's a ticket. But yeah, as you, it's a good way to think about just like these things are long and messy. Yeah. And, you know, meanwhile, you know, cars have got good points and bad points and they kill people, but we don't ban cars. We think about, okay, well, what laws do we want and how do we control this? And we don't even mandate speed limits in cars, which is a fascinating thing for you to try explaining that to an alien, that there's a speed limit of 70 miles an hour, but the car, they sell a car that will do 120. <laughs> so, and, like, so how does that, like, explain that? Explain the yeah, logical yeah, theory yeah, for this. Yeah. But the problem is, you know, with technology, because it became so big so quickly, we're still sort of at the stage of trying to work out, well, what are the trade-offs here? And how does this work? And when the tech company says they, don't, they can't do that, what do they mean? Do they mean they don't want to? Or do they genuinely mean that you're asking them to invent new physics? Yeah. You know, because certainly some of the proposals that come out of DC are kind of the equivalent of going to General Motors and saying, can you make gasoline that doesn't burn? And, you know, I've had these conversations with people and engineers in the Valley, and they'll, they'll say, well, look, you know, I can do X or Y, but I can't do both. You're going to need to choose. I think the best and the most interesting split here, I think, is privacy versus competition. Because if you were a competition regulator, you would go to Instagram and you would say, you have to make it as easy as possible for people to get their data out and give it to other people. Of course, your data isn't just your data. It's all the pictures that you've liked. But then those aren't your pictures. And who else liked those pictures? And what other pictures did they post? And what pictures did you not like? Which pictures did you scroll past without tapping like on? And those aren't your pictures either. And so all that data... Most of which isn't really your data any, at all. No, you have to make that easy to export. Now imagine describing that to a privacy regulator and imagine what they say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's not like an answer to that. That's just a trade-off that you're going to have to decide what is it that you want, which is the same thing for education policy or transport policy or housing policy or you know financial services. Like, do you want houses to be a wealth-building asset class or do you want cheaper houses? Well, those both sound good to me, but you probably can't have them both at the same time. And we sort of understand that policy in other areas is complicated, but we're still sort of working out what does policy look like in tech? Yeah. And I think, I mean, God, I've been out here for now five years and it's been a conversation times, sometimes the conversation every year and literally nothing. I mean, I'm sure things are happening, but nothing has happened. In terms of actual meaningful regulation, I mean, there was the anti-sex trafficking law that uh, that was passed. But basically, that's the only meaningful regulation that has happened here in the past five years, which is just quite extraordinary given how long we've been talking about it. I mean, the CCPA in California, which is a privacy law. Yeah. I mean, one of the aspects of this conversation, of course, is that these are global products and global companies, and yet we have national regulation. In the car industry, there are kind of treaties and sort of UN organizations to harmonize car regulation. 
And the advantage there is that there isn't like a basic cultural split between how the headlights should work. Yeah, it's not like Britain and Germany have a fundamentally you know different. Our, our different history means we disagree about how headlights should work. Like we can probably agree about tires and headlights, whereas libel law or free speech, you know, that's actually kind of a little bit more difficult to agree on. So one of the interesting phenomena you're sort of seeing now is the U.S. is sort of being a bit of a regulation taker, if that's the right word. In that the U.S. can't, the Constitution means the U.S. can't, or it's very difficult to pass laws that regulate content or require social networks to take down certain kinds of content. The U.K. doesn't have that problem. The EU doesn't have that. No. So the U.K. and the EU are passing those laws. So then the question is, well, how do you run your company? Do you just kind of apply those laws in the U.S. as well? Yeah. I mean, you've seen that in the last couple of weeks with the U.K.'s child protection laws. Those are just Instagram is just applying them everywhere. Totally. I know it's really interesting how that's kind of flipped. It's like the UK and Europe are actually forcing these companies' hands and they're like, well, you know, it doesn't make sense to try to kind of split the baby and stop are these rules halfway across the Atlantic. Yeah. I mean, part of this is, is there's a much broader sort of constitutional conversation around, you know, the sort of the differences in sort of regulatory and institutional structure. Yeah. That the UK has a dedicated antitrust agency. The UK, the US doesn't. The UK has a dedicated media regulator. The US kind of doesn't really. That's not really what the FCC yeah, yeah. is. And the sort of the US tends to come at this thing by trying to find a breach of the Sherman Antitrust Act, whereas Europeans just say, no, we don't like the structure of this industry. We're going to change it. Yeah. And there's no court case. <laughs> there's no court case. There's no punishment. Yeah. You just change the structure of the industry. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you've got that, those differences just in how you would even do regulation, never mind what you think you should be trying to achieve. And we're just kind of diving into that complexity now as you start having this DSA and DMA from Europe, um, the online harms bill from the UK, the children regulation from the UK, the UK competition agency stopping the Giphy takeover. Like a week later, DOJ come out saying, oh, well, we're going to sue over that. It's like, guys, it's done. It's happened. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, it's done. The CMA has already told them. They're not going to sell it, but just in Britain. (laughs) um well look that's brilliant uh it's always great to catch up and uh the perspective is awesome and um i encourage everybody to sign up to your newsletter and check out the presentation it's if you're interested in tech it's it's worth your time it's great thank you thank you as ever uh i'm sure i'll be bothering you about some story in the not too distant future sure great chat And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Benedict. I want to thank you all for listening for, gosh, what has been another, you know, up and down, topsy-turvy, crazy year. Thank you for the ratings, the reviews, for the tips via Acast, for telling your friends, for all of it. And yeah, that's it for me this week. I will be in the paper as usual at thetimes.co.uk. Also on Twitter, at Danny Fortson. Email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk if you have any questions, concerns, suggestions, etc. And that is it. Have a fabulous weekend and we will talk to you early-ish next week. Bye-bye. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.